0: And welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords,
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the 369th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Denise Lajamodir, retired associate professor of educational leadership at North Dakota State University, who is talking about the American Indian boarding schools and their impact on Native American culture. The history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapdal. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker.
0: This is the opening segment of our show called de Dhanaran, and today we'll be talking about American Indian boarding schools and their impact on Native American culture with Dr. Denise Lajadamere, retired assistant professor of educational leadership at North Dakota State University. Denise, first of all, thanks for being on our show.
2: Bonjour, uh, Anin. Thank you for the invitation to be on your show.
0: So going to ask a a simple question first. Can you give us some background on the creation of the American Indian boarding school
2: system? Okay, it's actually not a simple question. It's like trying to do 500 years of history in 45 minutes. But I'll begin with um, the the most important background history is that we say that there was an attempted genocide of, uh, American, of Native peoples, indigenous peoples of uh, Turtle Island, uh, that the policy from uh, Jackson was that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. What, had happen- what was happening is that the government was deciding that it cost up to a million dollars for every campaign to annihilate Indians, to wage war against us, to, um, for the, the battles um, and the massacres and so on that was happening. So, they had to come up with another solution for the Indian problem. And the solution was education, uh, and it was assimilation. So, in President Ulysses Grant in uh, 1869, he came up with what he called his Indian Peace Policy. And he said that this, well, his policy allowed religious denominations to undertake the work of civilizing the Indians. Um, which came to be uh, forced assimilation into white culture, then uh, to further establish this in eighteen ninety one the Commission of Indian Affairs uh, said to um, make and enforce by proper means rules and regulations that would secure the attendance of Indian children of suitable age at boarding schools, and what his uh, what this um, con- congressional authorization did was that if Native parents would not send their kids to boarding schools that they would withhold the rations clothing and other annuities so what happened I usually um, talk about my father because he was uh, literally the stolen generation in 1925 so he was living with an older couple because his mom had died in the 18 um, 19 flu epidemic so he was given to an older Cree couple to raise out on the prairie here just south of Belcourt here and they threatened them with, with holding their food, their rations, sending them to jail, and also their wood, which here in northern North Dakota, you know, you would simply freeze to death. They were living in a, in a log cabin at the time. So they literally stole him at, at age of—he uh, was nine years old. But he—they they had been hiding him out in, the, out in the bush when they'd see the Indian agent come. They would um, tell him, uh, you know, she shouldn't run. And he would run and hide, but his father eventually signed him up to go to uh Chimaura boarding school, which was the the policy then the first the policy the boarding schools and the schools were on the reservations. but what Richard Pratt and other assimilationists noticed was that the kids would go home every night and go back to their language, their culture, their ceremonies and uh then, So they weren't being assimilated as fast as they wanted them to be. So they started off-reservation boarding school. And so my father was sent from here in northern North Dakota, three days and three nights on a train to Chimahua, Oregon. So the he went to the second school that was established, Richard Pratt. Uh, he established the first school, first federal off-reservation boarding school in Carlisle in uh, 1879. And then his buddy in the Civil War, Wilkinson, uh, started the second school, Chimawa, uh in um, 1880 out in Chimawa, Oregon. So that was just the start of the boarding school.
1: Okay. Um, could you uh, – again, uh, difficult questions for just 45 minutes um, – when you're discussing Carlisle, which uh, is probably, as far as if individuals know anything about this, probably the most renowned one, uh, what kind of facilities were set up there? I mean, Jay and I are both high school history teachers, and when you teach, of course, you're questioning what are the facilities you have, uh, although Carlisle was pretty much renowned for because one of its uh, most famous uh, uh, students and one of the greatest athletes in the 20th century, uh, but what were the original facilities set up for these schools?
2: Well, they, first of all, they were, they were overcrowded. Uh, they were, the students went hungry. Uh, there was a lot of death due to disease that spread very quickly through the dorms. Uh, the beds were often very close together. There wasn't enough uh, monies by the federal government uh, for food. So most of the people that I interviewed uh were they they went hungry and the food that was provided many of them said that it was full of bugs uh it was rotten um so the the kids were hungry uh, so almost all the schools were were like that all all the bullying schools the uh, the the government contracted because of president uh grant's uh this uh, policy, there they contracted with with uh, Christian organizations, so um, they actually there was no separation of church and state. So they actually gave money to Christian organizations to run the schools, but the the schools were were all all underfunded, so they were they were in physically in, in pretty bad shape. And then the, let me let me talk about something real quick that maybe you're not aware of, but I have an academic book that I wrote. I I did a uh, qualitative study, an uh, interview study. I started interviewing elders uh, about their boarding school experience. I call them survivors, and the name of the book is "Stringing Rosaries: The History, the Unforgivable, and the Healing of Northern Plains American Indian Boarding School Survivors." So, in that, in a qualitative study, uh, you, you kind of shake loose some um, themes that that come up. So, let me just go over some of the themes, and maybe we can talk further from there. So there was five major themes that came from this interview study of elders. I interviewed uh, close to 30, but 16 of them made it into the book. So first of all, the survivors experienced loss. They loss of identity, loss of language, culture, ceremonies, traditions, loss of self-esteem. Loneliness due to loss of parents and extended family. Because most of the kids, like my dad um, and my mother, my grandparents, and my aunts and uncles, were sent away for up to 12 years. And many of them, for at least four years, like my father and his sister, they couldn't come back home uh, during those four years. But parents could not afford to go, to go see them. So a feeling of abandonment by parents, feeling lost and out of place when they returned home. And the second, uh, survivors attending boarding school experienced abuse. And that was corporal punishment, forced child labor, the outing program, hunger, malnourishment, sexual and mental abuse. And third, survivors experienced unresolved grief, mental health issues that continue to today. Uh, Most of the uh, survivors I interviewed were 60 to 90 years old. Um, They had um, relationship issues, alcohol abuse, and most of the survivors expressed that they felt they had an inferior education at boarding school so those are those those are the the horrors that that happen at boarding schools um, and uh, they're i'm what's called a, a, a intergenerational so i experienced uh intergenerational trauma so m- my mental health and so on was affected by what happened to my parents at boarding school too they're being sexually molested to um, starvation to the um, the the amount of work that they had to do because the schools were underfunded. So the students did the, they worked in the laundry, they worked in the, they had to work in the cafeteria. Uh, most of the buildings at Chamawa was built by, um, my father went into carpentry. So um, they, you know, they're only taught uh, jobs like carpentry or tinsmithing or blacksmithing back in the, in the, in the 20s. And the women, the girls were only taught to be domestic uh, AIDS. And um, so, but uh, one of the most horrific uh, um, issues that came out of my study, which I was pretty much aware of, was this, the rapid sexual abuse of uh, almost all of the students at these schools, whether they're were, they were, uh, Catholic or Christian, are run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and uh, the physical abuse that they experienced, along with, you know, the hunger, malnourishment, um, missing their parents. And um, both, most of these people I interviewed, the survivors I interviewed, didn't speak a word of English when they went to school, so neither did my mom, my dad, my grandfathers, and so they were severely beaten. Uh, They had pins put in their tongues if they spoke their language, they were thrown into dungeons if they spoke their language, Um, they were starved if they spoke their language, uh, and they were just beaten. So that was um, that's the fourth assimilation model that Richard Pratt uh, developed that uh, almost that all of the schools um, took up until the 1970s. So I'll stop there. And okay. if you have any more questions, okay.
1: Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned uh, for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, Saint Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
3: FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region.
0: Hello, and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Denise Legemodier, Retired Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at North Dakota State University, and we're talking about boarding boarding American Indian schools and their impact on the Native American culture. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, you get the first question.
4: Hey, thanks. Denise, uh, you painted a uh, pretty gruesome picture uh, of what these, uh, particularly if these Christian organizations were Commission to run uh, these schools uh, was was there any opposition in the late 1800s up into the early uh, 1900s for the, the the treatment of these children? Uh,
2: opposition from the tribes or parents? Yeah, both both the tribes
4: uh, uh, the uh, and also the uh, l- let me dare call it. Uh, the white Americans, the, the Christians, um, the uh, uh, other American citizens, uh, there had to be been some kind of of uh, opposition for the, the situation that these children were put in. And I was wondering if, if you found anything in your research, if there was any organized opposition.
2: No, I haven't. I have to really think about it. It's not a question that I asked. It's not... Anything you know that uh, we were again? It was forced assimilation, and there were laws. And the the white assimilationists, like Richard Pratt, who said, um, you know, he liked Indians, but he hated the culture. Um, so it was um, kill the Indian and, and save the man. Uh, so a lot a lot of what happened. Okay, as I'm thinking. A lot of people weren't aware of what was going on in the boarding schools because they were so remote. There was often fences around them. Uh, even now, listening to some people say that they lived in a town, they saw that school over there, but they didn't know what was going on over there. And the tribes were powerless, of course. Uh, you know, we were still in, in what I call what's called a, a historical trauma. We were still trying to get used to being forced to live on reservations after a near total genocide. Uh, total poverty on the reservations. Our way of life was taken away completely under the thumb of of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So there was no, maybe there was individual families that that resisted. There are stories of kids that ran away. One uh, story is a a young boy at, at Red Lake. He ran away and his grandpa took him back to the school. And he ran away again in the wintertime. And this time his grandfather must have known are accepted that, this little boy, that there's something bad going on. So when the Indian agent knocked on the door and um, busted the door down, the grandpa sat there with a, a gun, a shotgun aimed at, at the Indian agent. So he, so there is, there's stories of that, of individual stories of, of kids running away and of uh, uh, parents that if they would find out that things were rough at the boarding school, sometimes they would come and try to get the kids. Uh, uh, one of the stories is of uh, two little sisters that were, Allowed to call their parents, but the nun was standing over them with the big club, and they had tears oh. running down their faces. But they had to tell their parents that everything was okay. So, you know, was there an organized resistance? Not, not that I know of.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, so, Denise, I'm I'm interested in uh, what you. We, we find that this kind of forced assimil- assimilation rarely is successful. Um, so I, it's sort of a two-part question. In your interviews, um, how much did, the, did this attempted assimilation really succeed? And then my second question is: Was it considered a success by the bureaucrats that had instituted it in the first place?
2: Well, they they thought it was. I'm I'm sure for for the native population. Uh, this is this happened also in Canada. Uh, United States, down in other countries, New Zealand, Australia. Um, you know, like my father never spoke his language again. He never spoke it again, neither did my mom. My mom understood it, so when my grandmother would, would speak uh, Korean Ojibwe to her, she would answer in English. Uh, a lot of them went home being ashamed of who they were as Indian people, as Native people. They went home not knowing any of their culture and maybe even making fun of their parents who were still practicing uh, the cultural ways because of the indoctrination, and, you know, it was also forced Christianity. So they also lost their ceremonies and uh, uh, the language and uh, um, the culture, everything that, that went with, with who they were as a Native people as when, when they left. So if, um, and then, of course, they they were forced into learning to read and write into English and so on, but their, their jobs were... Were they they weren't encouraged they were only encouraged to go to the sixth seventh and eighth grade they weren't encouraged to go any higher and certainly not to go on to um, you know become doctors or lawyers or um, teachers and so on so I guess you know some would say well they they learn that way but what what we lost as a, a, a tribal nation with with this this generation of uh, that were forced to boarding school is what we're still suffering from today it's, it's it's called, you know, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. We have unresolved grief. Um, there's boarding school syndrome. Um, there's, uh, there's people, there's indigenous people out there that are still suffering from, from sexual abuse uh, that they never told anybody. Um, so um, there, there's something called epigenics where I think of my great-grandmother, who I remember very well, who was involved in the Indian Wars, or she saw the Indian Wars, and then she sent her four boys to boarding schools, or she was forced to send them to boarding schools. One of them was my mother's father, and then he sent my mother to boarding school. And then there's me, so um, there's new research out there that's being done with Holocaust survivors that um, in, in my DNA is still that trauma. Even though I didn't go to boarding school, I still suffer. So it's me times a million other native people that are out here in the United States and Canada, that um, that is a legacy that has been left to us from from boarding schools. So it's a it's a perfect and a, a very traumatic le- legacy. And it's one that I call America's best kept secret. <clears throat> um. Um, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, America's most horrific kept secret. Um, when you were talking about two-part questionnaire, uh, number one, of course, you mentioned I was going to ask, Are there were there boarding schools in Canada? And you said, yes. Could you provide our listeners some names of some schools there? And also, of course, one of the most horrific kept secret was that there was funding that was supposed to go to these schools uh, for quite some time. In your research, did you uh, come across the corruption. I mean, there was, you know, were, was there noted evidence that, yes, uh, levels of government, whether it's the local state or even the feds, were stealing the money that were supposed to go to these facilities?
2: Uh, you know, you bring up a good point. Uh, my research is with 16 uh, people that I interviewed, okay. the, the- big issue in the United States is that there's much more research. Just that question exactly needs to be interviewed. And, and I know there is a, uh, uh, a Native American, female um, uh, journalist that is researching just into the monies. Um, how, where did monies come from and, and where did they go from uh, in, in general at the sometimes well, often at the boarding schools, they would give out, send out begging letters and money would come into the school, but that money was often used to uh feed the 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 administration. It didn't go to the students um, yeah, I forgot what was the rest of the question I got going <laughs>
1: okay, and Canada you're going uh where were some of the schools in Canada were there ones like the uh, horrific boarding schools that we had here in the states the,
2: yeah, Canada is about. 30, 25, 30 years ahead of us in dealing with boarding school history. They okay. had something, they, they, they started their boarding school based on our boarding school here in the United States. They met with uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in D.C. They they sent a delegation, I think it was either White Earth or, or, or Red Lake, to look at our boarding schools. And the next year, their commissioner <laughs> of education, Indian education up there began a boarding school up there based on our model here. Uh, and there's a report. It's either the Devon's or Blevins report. So anyway, so it's a letter that, that I have. Um, so they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission up there. And the commissioners there, they went throughout Canada, and they took 40,000 uh, um, people's uh, testimony, 40,000. I have 16 recorded. 40,000 the horrors that happened up there. There was medical experimentation. There was uh, they they had an electric chair, at one to to torture kids. Um, the, the horrific, rampant uh, sexual abuse and, and deaths and beatings. Most of the boarding schools have graveyards uh, uh, by them, so kids were kids died, were beaten, or the illnesses that ran rampant, and they were buried there because parents couldn't afford to come get them, and the boarding schools couldn't afford to to send them home. So they they've they have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission up there. The boarding school uh, uh, survivors up there, they filed a class action lawsuit. And I think it was close to $5 billion was, was shake, um, shook loose between all of the different organizations and churches and so on in Canada for healing and for this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The United States can't do that because we have statute of limitations. So we can't file uh, a class action lawsuit against the United States. So, um, so we, we do have what's called. I started. I was co-founder of an organization here in the United States called uh, the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. They call it NABS, and um, it's now based in uh, in Minneapolis. <clears throat> I was one of the co-founders along with Native American Rights Fund. And uh, I was uh, president and on the board, and now I'm um, off the board due to uh, regulations. But anyway, so that's our organization. They recently won, uh, they recently received a $10 million grant. But otherwise, since 2011, we were operating on only a couple hundred thousand dollars compared to what Canada was able to do for for their truth and uh, reconciliation um, to get information out about the horrors of what happened up there in Canada but they, they know the exact boarding schools. I went up to one of their meetings up in uh, Whitehorse, Yukon. I was invited as an outside observer of their, an international observer of their process of uh, truth and reconciliation. And uh, we sat at a, a working supper, and one of the commissioners looked at me, and they said, how many boarding schools do you have in the United States? And, you know, I represented the United States at that time, and, and I didn't know. We didn't know. No one has ever asked the government or the churches on the United States how many boarding schools they ran. So Canada knew exactly how many boarding schools they had. And, again, it's all throughout Canada. There's one just 50 miles north of here in Brandon, um, Winnipeg. Uh, all, all throughout Canada they had have, they have boarding schools. But they know the number of people that are still alive, about 80,000 survivors are still alive. And they, they took the testimony of, of 40,000 um, survivors. We, we haven't started the truth-telling here in the United States. Um, so after being asked and not knowing how many boarding schools, I went on a 12-year journey, and it's part of my book. I have a map that folds out in the back of my book, Streaming Militaries, that uh, has a list of boarding schools. 12 years of, of tedious um, uh, research that, that just took a lot of time, uh, I, I spent five days at—I'm um, gonna forget the, the Marquette, the Catholic University. Thirty-five boxes full of maybe twenty, thirty, forty files in each box. Uh, going through each individual file: what was a day school? This was a boarding school, just for the Catholic. So I have a list of uh, Catholic boarding schools. Do I have all of them? Nope. Do I have all the boarding schools in the United States? Nope. I have. Uh, on my map, I have 366 boarding schools that were operated um, Some way before some of the, the um, Christian uh, churches went into, say, Oklahoma Indian Territory. So this was before the president's peace policy even and started boarding schools there. So since the book has been published uh, last year, I found 18 more boarding schools. So I now have uh, 384 boarding schools in, in the United States. But I'm the only one that's done that research. Uh, um there it's it's located nowhere else. But like I said, no one's asked the government, are the are all of the church denomination Baptists, Episcopalians. No one's ever asked them how many boarding schools did you run? So I've just made it my life's work to find boarding schools that operated in in the United States. So I'm not not done yet. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Denise, why do you think knowing about the impact of American Indian boarding schools on Native American culture is relevant in today's world?
2: I I want everyone to know about America's best-kept secret. I want the world. My boarding school, the, the survivors that I, I interviewed, they said that many of them don't want their names out there. They said, please tell the world what happened to us. I want the world to know what happened to um, Native American boarding school survivors here in the United States and in Canada. And I want the world to know why we have many of the problems that we have right now diabetes and uh, health issues and, and um, all kinds of issues that have uh, the overarching um, umbrella of uh, boarding school trauma that, that we are still trying to recover from today.
1: Okay. When we get back, we will wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
3: Program, the award winning Relevant or Irrelevant is heard Friday evenings at 9 30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find relevant or Irrelevant, and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center.
0: This concludes our 369th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is Kayla's theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Denise Lajomodir, a retired associate professor of educational leadership at North Dakota State University, who talked with us about American boarding school American Indian boarding schools and their impact on the Native American culture. The history boss for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is R O I, Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Vesotho proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.